Romans chapter 12, and I made a mistake, and I apologize. I'm, I'm very sorry, but uh, Rodney and Maria are getting married also. Where did Rodney go? You know, I thought I was hyper and, and like on the go all the time. I cannot get a hold of that boy. <laughs> I have tried to talk with it. I just can't get him. I hope he's listening. <laughs> but they are getting married also. Lord willing, August and September are wedding months around here. So, a lot going on. <clears throat> so, Romans chapter 12, and as we go there, I want to finish this up by saying this. Verses 1 through 13 are really important to us as a church. Um, this is a very unique church. It's very unique. Um, the reason it's unique is many of you, how many of you have come from a fundamental Baptist church? Raise your hand. Okay. Coming from a fundamental Baptist church, at least it's been my experience, that the pastor does everything. The pastor is the one that ex is expected to do all the calling, all the visitation, all, every, whatever it is, janitorial, it doesn't matter, all of it. This is a unique church in that, frankly, I cannot do all that. It's not possible. The only way this church survives is the one another gifts that he has given each and every one of us. We are a family that have a bunch of chores. How many understand that? And I don't mean that negatively, but it, the illustration is helpful. And when we don't do the chores that were given by God, what happens to the chickens? They might die. What happens to the dishes? They're all dirty. How many get this? I think it's very, very fitting, especially here in our church. You could go to a one-pastor-run church and come and sit down and become lazy as a Christian. That won't be helpful for you, and it won't be helpful for the church. And that's not how God designed it. I apologize that I'm not Superman, but I'm not. I cannot do everything. I will do everything I can to serve you in the giftedness that God has given me, preaching and teaching and encouraging whenever I can. But we have to be a family. Does that make sense? And that's why Romans 12, 1 through 13, is so vitally important. Um, the one another, and there's many others, Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians, they're all over in the text. But that's where we're at. One of the things um, that we are doing, and I think I, I would like to tell you, is I'm working on my dissertation over, and I, I said that last week, and then I, my ADD caught in, and I changed subjects. I never do that, but I did last week. <laughs> and I forgot to finish it. So one of the things, if you're... Here's what we're, I'm doing it on. I'm doing it on bivocational ministries. And the issue is, in that bivocational ministries, I believe that's what Paul and many of the early church pastors did. Um, and I think there's evidence in Scripture where many of the leaders of God did. Uh, Moses wasn't just a preacher. He had probably animals. Abraham certainly did. And there's, you can go through all of them. But in the end, it's a family ordeal. How many get that? It's everybody's doing their, their, their God-given gift. And it's just beautiful if it's all working together. And I praise the Lord for the church that we have and that many things like that do happen. And that there are many people doing the gifts that God has given them within the local church to serve each other. And I pray that you understand that my goal wasn't to bash anybody. I hope, how many understand that? Not in the least bit. 
It's to encourage us and to remind us that this church will survive only if one another's continue or grow and grow. Does that make sense? One of the things I'm asking for, I'm going to ask for help, like I did last week, and then I didn't tell you what help I need. How many remember that? Okay. So here's the, the help I would, I would love to have, and that is this. Anytime you see anything as you're uh, reading your, the Scripture, as you're studying um, biblical, uh, a book on biblical principles, or hearing a sermon, anything like that, that involves work, the theology of work, uh, God's image, or bivocational ministries, can you just like send that to me by a text or email? That would help me have more resources. Does that make sense for this 200-page paper? Eventually, you'll be having the 200-page paper, <laughs> and we will be going through it together, but that's down the road. But I would love help with that. If you want to be part of that, great. I would love it and I embrace it. All right, Romans chapter 12. Let's get into the important stuff. Romans 12, verse 14. We've learned that a Christian's relationship to God is found in Romans 12, 1 and 2. You could break this whole passage up this way. Not saying it's the only way dogmatically that's the way God broke it up I, have, I, I don't know but this is the one of the ways you certainly can see this text a Christian's relationship to God Romans 12 1 and 2 Romans 12 3 through 8 God has given each and every one of us gifts to express our Christ-like love to serve others he's given those gifts so we can serve each other we can help each other encourage each other grow each other we find that in 3 through 8, he talks about those gifts, and each of us have a measure of faith. Verses 9 through 13, you could say, these are what those giftedness, God's giftedness looks like within the household of faith. Within the church, this is what it looks like, and we finished that last week with verse 13. So within the body of Christ, this is what it looks like. Now, that does not mean that verses 14 through 21 can't be also within the church, but there is an element for sure outside the church. And so that's where we're starting this morning is what does God's giftedness look like within the world as a whole? Not just within this unique body called the church, but outside the church. In other essence, as I was telling I don't remember who, but I was telling someone this week, there's always Monday, and that's a great topic, that's a great heading for this sermon. There's always Monday. And for that matter, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Frankly, there's Sunday afternoon too. <laughs> you are outside of the assembly more than you're within the assembly. I think it's important to realize, especially with the texts that we have already gone through, that the household of faith should take preeminence, especially those of the household of faith. How many remember when Paul said that? That's for sure, but that doesn't mean we neglect or don't use our gifts within, and pardon me for saying this, and I'm not trying to use the church as these buildings, but within this wall, this assembly. Does that make sense? There's more to life than within this wall. We're going to be out on Monday. How are we going to be then? And that's what we're going to be discussing this morning. Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. We might get through verse 14 this morning. Because it's a big deal and it gets to the heart of the issue. It is so good. The text, the text is so good. The Bible says this in verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Now, if you were to go to all these different preachers and many of them go and they try to preach 14 through 21 all at once, and I think, I, I think that's doing the text a disservice, but the Bible says bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. 
And that's what we'll be studying this morning. Paul says the same thing over and over in this paragraph. From 14 through 21, it says, don't curse those who persecute you. Verse 17, don't return evil for evil. Verse 19, do not avenge yourself. Do you see a pattern here? It looks like they're saying the same things, but there are intricacies that need to be dealt with. Verse 21, don't be overcome by evil. And then there's the positive side of all this in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Verse 18, live peaceably with all men. Verse 20, give food. By the way, that doesn't mean don't live peaceably with women. All right, it's talking universally, live peaceably with all. Verse 20, give food and drink to your enemy. Verse 21, overcome evil with good. So we can see, how many can see that there's a theme going on in this part of the text? And the theme really hits us in the smack in the head in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. I'm going to use some examples right now. I'm going to give you some examples. Think this verse through and then think of these people. Adolf Hitler, 1889-1954. He believed that the Jews were the root cause of all problems and set out to eliminate them. His actions resulted in the death of over 50 million people. Can we bless him? Joseph Stalin, 1878 to 1953, he easily killed over 20 million people. He once said, one death is a tragedy. A million deaths is simply a statistic. Heinrich Himmler. Himmler had ordered the killing of about six million Jews. Two to five, uh, uh, I'm sorry, two to five million Russians and many other groups that the Nazis believe were unworthy of living. It is believed, not verified, that he had furniture made from the bones and skins of vi Jewish victims. Saddam Hussein. Now, some of you, the first three wouldn't have any idea except in history books, if you even read history books in school today. <clears throat> but I will tell you, those three are very close to where I am. My father, my great-grandfather, jumped ship to leave Hitler's youth, or not Hitler's youth, uh, the first guy, German guy, I can't remember. Anyways, his youth of bringing up a huge nation to rule the world. He stowed on a ship and came over here because of that very thing. And when I was dating my wife, I will never forget, I was, uh, I'm a Salvation Army guy. How many understand that? And I went and I bought this beautiful, long, huge wool trench coat that was literally a German trench coat. And I was dating my wife, and she had not introduced me to her grandmother yet. Her grandmother was from Belgium. Her grandmother lived during that time. Her grandmother they were pillaged their town over and over again. I walk in, I don't think we were hand in hand, Katie. <laughs> I walked in with my wife. Girlfriend, thank you. And her face just dropped. This is a blue-eyed, blonde-haired, German trench coat wearing Nazi in her opinion. How in the world could Grandma Giselle bless me or that mess? 
it's real. Saddam Hussein, his policies made way for the death of not less than two million people. Let's go way back. Nero, AD 37 to 68. Nero wreaked havoc in the Roman Empire. He burnt entire cities, murdered thousands of people, and every member of his family. Genghis Khan. I won't, I'm giving you too much information, probably. Genghis Khan. 20 to 60 million people were killed. Mao, Mao Zedong. He created the largest genocide in history. His actions killed around 40 to 70 million people through forced labor, executions, and starvations. Then there's names like Jeffrey Dahmer. There's people today like maybe your boss. <laughs> maybe the one who stole something from you. Maybe the one that was drunk. There's a country song concerning that. Um, I don't even remember the name of it, but it's about this drunkard that was walking down the road, destitute, walked into a church, met the pastor of the church, and the pastor was trying to encourage him and love him and then the man told him one of the greatest burdens on his heart was that 15 years later, earlier, he was drunk riding on the road and killed a boy. That boy was that pastor's son. And that pastor confessed, I was preaching confession and be forgiving of others and I couldn't even forgive myself was too angry with this person. The Bible says to bless them. Bless them. Can we do that? Let me ask you this. And I'm, I'm talking to myself. We have a president, Joe Biden, today. Are you blessing him? Does God call us to do so? We have a state that continues to perform abortions because we have abortions on the book. Do we continue to bless them? Or do we get too Americanized, too political, and hate them? And talk bad about them. How many understand what I'm talking about? We are to bless them. Paul now is using the imperative. Before it was somewhat imperative, but not, it wasn't really a direct command. It's basically, if you truly love the Lord, if you're truly born again, this is what you're going to look like. This is what's going to come out. Now he's commanding. It's easy to love those that love you. Amen. It's easy to get along with those that you agree with. But now he's taking a right turn here. He's saying it's not only about those. It's not the easy. By the way, if that's easy, how terrible is it today? Because we're not, are we truly doing, uh, helping one another, encouraging one another in all things? So now he's saying, listen, we need to bless those who persecute us. Obviously, we know he can't be talking about the church, specifically in this text, because now he's talking about persecution. Now, does persecution come within the church? It better not last long if it does, right? Amen? So he's talking about outside the church. But he's talking to Christians. And he's saying, bless those who persecute you. I don't think we do. 
it's been my experience, and I'm not an experienced guy to make theology on, but it's been my experience, and I think it's been yours also, that many times Christians get angry at different people and curse them or hate them or dislike them. They certainly don't bless them. The Bible here calls us to bless. The imperative here is truly expressed. You is understood. You bless those who persecute you. Now, in this time, it was even worse. It was even worse because what was happening was they were being killed. Their, their, their financial stability was being taken away. And you can go on and on and on the persecution that was happening. Folks, we may be persecuted eventually, but this ain't nothing yet. Are we going to bless them? Or are we going to try to kill them? And hate them? That's how this, that's the essence of what's going to be talked about this morning. The Bible says, bless. Bless can be used in a various sense. All of them good, none of them negative. They're all good. Here it will be used in the sense of ask God to bless. As a matter of fact, in some of your, does anybody have a translation that says, ask God to bless them that persecute you? You do. Okay, what, what version is that? King James. Okay, the King James has that. Sure, okay. The idea here is ask God to bless them. By the way, what can you do? <laughs> the idea here is ask God to give them blessings. What is the greatest blessing? Salvation. In other words, you could literally say to bless them was pray that God would save their souls. Ask God to bless Paul takes the verb he has just used for pursuing hospitality and enjoins his reader to call down God's blessing on people who pursue or persecute or call down blessing on persecution. Because there's a weird word going on here. The, the, the text in my, my uh, translation says persecute you, but here's the reality. How many know what the the, the manuscripts, when I say manuscripts, how many know what that means? Okay, manuscripts means what? The copies of the originals, that's what they are, that we have based our Bible on. So a manuscript, there are over 5,500 manuscripts. In those manuscripts, we have the essence of the Bible. We have what we have. This is not this translation, but this is what we get from all the manuscripts, all right? So, in those manuscripts, they might have 10 books of Romans in different manuscript form. How many understand that? So, here's the reality. Some of, most of them have persecute you in those manuscripts, but, but some of them don't have the you which is even farther. Does that make sense? We bless not only those who persecute you, but who are persecuting. We bless them. That's the idea. That's the command. Paul is commanding believers to bless people that persecute. By the way, this is nothing new. Some might say, well, Paul says it here. What does that mean? Well, this means more than that because it's not just Paul. There are biblical commands to bless enemies all over in Scripture. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, and Luke chapter 6, verse 28, tells us to bless them. And he blesses them, and we'll get into that. Stephen, here's Stephen. He's been preaching the Bible. I can imagine if Stephen was an American in that same situation. He's preaching the Bible, and all of a sudden they come out of the storm. And he, Lord, why these idiots are doing this? Come on, would you just knock them out of here? I'm an American citizen. I have I have my rights to do this. Take care of them. No, he doesn't say that. 
Matter of fact, he goes far beyond that. He said, Lord, don't, leave, don't put this on their account. Are you kidding? Paul says it also not only here in, in Romans chapter 12, but he says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we will see all those. So this isn't a new command. It's not a different command. It's just one of the, many, one of the commands that finds many places in Scripture. The one that I think is very important is Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. you. Say, wow, that sounds very familiar. Yeah, Paul was following Jesus' lead. Amen. Matter of fact, many commentators believe Paul's just reiterating the same commandment that God, Christ, gave. Which is true. He is. As Jesus was unfairly being crucified on the cross, he didn't say, I'm Christ, who do you think you are? But he could have. He says, I say to you, what did he say to them? Father, he prayed. So Jesus not only gave the commandment, we'll find it in, in, in Luke 6 eventually here, but I'm going to give it right now since we're talking about Jesus. He looked at him and said, Father, forgive all of them, for they know not what they do. They were literally murdering him, being totally innocent, being their very God. They were murdering him, and he's praying that God forgives them. Let me ask you, is that a perfect example of blessing those that persecute you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I say love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And I would say this word blessed, that that's the idea. Pray for their salvation. It sets, by the way, a very high standard for Christians, does it not? Stephen, Stephen provided an example of his godly attitude when he was being stoned. Acts chapter 7, verse 60. The Bible says that they were preaching the word. That was going on. There was a revival taking place, a revival. They were returning to God. They were repenting and turning to Christ. Thousands of them. Paul, the Pharisee of the Pharisees, got on his high horse, literally, came down and said, we will deal with this. We will kill them. And as he was holding the coats of all involved, they were stoning him to death. What did he say? Let me ask you, what would we say? I would guess that there would be people who say, hey, stop stoning me. I will, I, will, I will reject what I'm saying. Just stop it. I think there's professing Christians that might say that. I think there's some big old Christians that say, hey, I'm going to take the stone you threw me and throw it right back at you. But that's not at all what Stephen did. This picture is probably one of the greatest emotional pictures in all of Scripture for me. Because I can see him being stoned, not throwing words back at them, not throwing stones back at them, but looking to Jesus. How do you know, how do you know he's looking at Jesus? Look what he says. Falling on his knees... He cried with a loud voice. I could see him doing this, falling on his knees, looking to heaven, which he saw going to heaven. Amen. Lord, take care of him. 
No. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Oh. Wow. Let me ask you, as we have all gone through COVID and all have made mistakes, has our response to people that are against us been to pray for their souls to bless them? That's a pretty probing question. I can t- I'll be honest with you. I get mad. I-, I can't get glides to serve people. I can't get my glue to make my cabinets. We waited eight months for wood. Do you know how frustrating that gets? Do you know how angry one can get about that? Do you know how wrong all of that is as a reaction? Stephen was very clear. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And I praise God. So he's focused on them. And the Lord, right? That's his whole focus. It wasn't on him. His dire need at the moment, it was on them and it was on him. What about selfishness is involved in that statement? Nothing. Not a thing. So he's focused on the Lord. He's focused on their eternal life. And having said this, what happened? He fell asleep. What does that give you the idea that happened? God gave him peace. Is that one of them? God gave him perfect peace. Paul is not saying, don't retaliate. He's not saying we should forgive them. Although, forgiveness and non-retaliatory are implied, he goes beyond that. I know, I know I need to forgive him. That's not what he's saying. Not at all what he's saying. He's going beyond that point. He's going way beyond it. It's just... Not only do you forgive them, you bless them. Do do you see the difference? You bless them. To bless them is a whole different level. This is so beyond simply forgiving. He is saying that we should actively seek their good as we pray for God's blessing on them. As Jesus states in Luke, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Luke 6, verse 28, which we talked about before. Prayer is the expression to God of what you long for. If that is true, what was occupying Stephen's heart? If that's true, did, did, should I say that again so you can reply easier? Prayer is the expression to God of what you long for. If that is true, tell me, what occupied Stephen's heart above anything else? The salvation of others. So blessing someone is not just the way you treat him. It includes the longings that you have for someone. And Jesus says they are longings for good, not longings for a curse. That's what bless means. Bless them. Pray for them. Pray for what? They're good now and forever. 
And the greatest good is seeing and savoring and showing Christ without end. Paul also demonstrates this in his own life in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. Now, we could go through the whole passage, but just, I just want to touch on what we're focused on today. I can't give you the whole context. But he is, in essence, writing to Christians who are well off and describing to them. It's just crazy. Okay, i, I, I got to tell you this. <laughs> this is crazy. He's writing to the Corinthians that are wealthy people. It is the, 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 the United States of the world at that time. I mean, all the trade went through there. I mean, they were wealthy people. And he lived there without getting paid by that church to prove, their, to prove his point. It's not about that. It's about your souls. And you guys got a problem. Because I've been to Macedonia, the poorest place in the world, and they shower me with gifts. You, not so much. Nothing. So here I'm working for you. I'm working outside the church for you. That's what he's, it's just awesome. And here's what he's telling to them again, that same group that had everything. He says, when we were reviled, what did we do? When we went out preaching all over the place, we, people stoned me. How many know that? Paul was stoned in Asia Minor, Turkey, whatever you want to call it. He, he went there he was stoned outside the, 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 the city. And instead of saying, I'm a citizen of Rome and you can't do this to me and I want to fight. <laughs> he didn't do that. Do you know what he did? Do you know what Paul did to the people that stoned him outside the city? He got up. He went right back in the city and he preached to them the gospel. Is that not exactly what Stephen did? Paul's saying here, when we were reviled, we didn't do anything against them. We blessed them. When we are persecuted, we endure this. When we are slandered, we try to comfort. That conciliates the same idea. We have become as the scum of the world and the dredge of all things, even until now. But it doesn't matter. I get so tired of people saying, Christians saying, man, if we could just get some rich people in here. If we can just get the mayor in here. If we can just get that. Listen, God has given us who we have. Amen? And we glorify the Lord together. We serve each other because that's what families do. We are scum of the earth. Then he goes on in the text. So let me let me get back on my on track here. Many of the Bible, uh, regardless, regardless of how you view this, the principle is absolutely clear. Jesus commanded blessing persecutors. He exemplified blessing persecutors on the cross. He said, "Father, what?" Forgive them. Paul and Stephen both commanding and exemplifying blessings also. The principle of non-retaliation for personal injury, whether physical, mental, emotional, permeates the entire New Testament. It provides guidance from life when life brings up us up against those who care nothing for us and are in fact opposed to all that we, are, that we stand for. We are asked that they may enjoy the blessings of God. Love inevitably desires the best for other people, regardless of who they are. In essence, the natural man says, curse them. Remember Job's friends, curse God and die. Do you remember them saying that? That's what the natural man says. That's what the depraved man says. God says, no, 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 no. You ask me to bless them. That's what true believers say. Therefore, all Christians are to bless them that persecute. 
What does that mean to bless them? Bless is emphasized by being repeated. Because it doesn't just say bless. It says bless them and then bless again. It's, it's duplicated there. It's reinforced. Do not curse. Do not be like the natural man. We know this is certainly declaring with our voices because of the term bless them that persecute you. Bless and curse not. Let me ask you, how can you curse without using your mouth? We do. We do. The issue is, what we think and what we say need to be blessing to those that persecute. That's what he's saying. Bless them. Pray for them. Love them. Do not curse Bless them, bless, do not curse. This is Paul's only use of the term. Paul makes it clear that cursing has no place amongst those whom Christ has saved. The injunction to bless those who persecute us is one of the most revolutionary statements in the New Testament. How in the world can that pastor who a drunkard killed on the highway for being stupid how can he look at him and say, not only do I forgive you, but I'm praying for your salvation. Let me share with you the love of Christ. How can he do that? How many think that's beyond human thinking? It is. It's superhuman. The issue is, Schreiner states it best. The injunction to bless those who persecute us is one of the most revolutionary statements in the New Testament and can be carried out only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Without the indwelling Spirit, there is no way you can do this. No way. You cannot think you can. As strong as you may be, you will fail. Frankly, we have failed within our conversations, even here within our church. Bless those who curse you, who persecute you. So why would anyone pray for the salvation of someone who has totally, uh, uh, who has totally persecuted you and mistreated them? I will tell you this, if we cannot see ourselves blessing them, who are we thinking of? It's hard. But who are we thinking of when we're saying, yeah, I could never bless them, or I can't even forgive them. It's really hard to forgive them. I, I, I hate them. Who are we thinking about ourselves? What we're saying is, I deserve better, and they did wrong, and I don't like them anymore. That's absolute selfishness, and it's absolutely foreign to a true believer. You say, well, I, 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 we do. Yeah, I know we do, and it's called sin. It's called sin. We are thinking of ourselves Here's the, here's the deal, listen. We are thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Oh, where did that come from? Romans 12, right around verse 3 somewhere. Maybe how about this one? Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Where's that found? Oh, Revel, Romans chapter 12, verse 16. We're not quite there. So before and after these truths, he's talking about humility. You see, we can boast in nothing. We can boast in nothing. Amen. Amen. Folks, when we understand Scripture, I should get this up here so we can think about this, sorry. So why would anyone pray for the salvation of someone who has totally mistreated them? Biblically, 
Logically, reasonably, honestly, and in all humility is the only way you can bless those who persecute. It's the only way. We, here's the deal. Remember we've talked about predestination when we went through Romans chapter 8. How many remember that? And I would tell you, every time I use that word predestination, there's a lady in the back that was just, ooh, just hated that term. Hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it. Every time she saw me, who do you think you are preaching this? I'm just preaching the text. Hated it. But let me tell you this. When you understand foreknowledge and predestination, what can you boast in as far as your salvation? Not a thing. Where does God want us in our Christian life? In total humility, boasting about not a thing. Ephesians chapter 2, right? Not of works, because if it was of works, if it was of you, then all of you can what? Boast. That's the issue. I know by the word of God that this faith, this looking away from self to Christ, is a gift. Salvation is a gift. It's not an earning. It's not a wage. It's a gift. I can't even boast that I was smart enough or wise enough or spiritual enough or godly enough or humble enough to believe in Jesus. No, no, a thousand times no. God was kind, simply kindly enough and strong enough to overcome all my resistance. God overcame all our pre-self preoccupations, our self-infatuations, our self exaltations. He overcame all of that. We were all prideful, arrogant dorks. And I'm using myself as that. We were. God overcame every one of those and brought him us to himself. How can we be proud in that? We had very little to do with that. We just simply repented and believed. So we can boast in nothing. We certainly can't boast in our salvation. The Bible's very clear about that. Here's the other thing. We can't, about, we can't boast about our spiritual gift either. Not only can we not boast about our salvation in, as if we had something to do with it, but we can't boast about our spiritual gift. Why? Because it's God's spiritual gift. I know by the word of God that this gift that I use to worship God and serve others is not because of my upbringing. It's not because of my self-made talents. It's not about anything apart from God's gracious choice. None of it is. If giftedness was, was something that you had to conjure up and to build upon or to, to conjure up and make it and, and, and have all those worldly things brought in to make it really cool, then, then you should have a camp that teaches, oh, you do. Giftedness is directly from God Almighty. Yes, we can sharpen those gifts through study and work. Amen. But it's God who gave the gifts. We can't boast in that. And by the way, I think, I, th I really believe this, if you are so arrogant and boastful that you're going to put a pool in your backyard in the shape of a violin, there's a problem. And it is antithesis of what this is. God the Spirit overcame all of our Self-everything. If all of this is true, and it absolutely is, some of those ramifications of those truths are this. Our salvation is absolutely God, God's grace based on His selfless love. Amen? Our giftedness is absolutely God's grace based on His selfless love. Our Father is absolutely God the Father by His grace and accomplished by His selfless love. Because of all that He has done, we are now a new creature and bear the image of God and are now known as Christ followers. Amen? 
children of God. Amen. By the way, the world is not all children of God. Amen. The only people that can call God the Father is those that are truly His children. And you, if you are truly born again, are His children. And only you. Christ defines true believers. Sacrificial love defines true believers. Selflessness defines true believers. Therefore, realizing that we are no better than anyone mentioned in the start of the sermon who are absolutely at the mercy of the great and sovereign God, the reality is we are no different than Adolf Hitler. We aren't. Adolf Hitler could absolutely repent and believe. Amen? He could have. It's too late. You see, just like we are totally relying on His grace and mercy, so are they. Well, He's so much better. The heart of every humanity is deceitful. And here's the term. You know it. What is it? And desperately wicked. We are no different. We are no different. So many times we want to have an identity. Folks, our identity is with Christ. Christ defines us. So what do we do? We bless those who persecute us. We bless and we curse not. <coughs> we pray for the salvation of others because God opened the hearts and eyes and, um, and mind of us. He can do the same with them. We bless them and pray for them. Pray for what? Pray their, for their good now and forever. And the greatest good is seeing and savoring and showing Christ without end. This Christian life is radical. It cuts to the root of who we are and what we long for. This is radical behavior to bless them that persecute. That is radical. How can we? How can we experience that same radical behavior? First of all, it comes from faith in Christ. It comes from faith in Christ. And Jesus Christ is all-sufficient, remember? If Christ is all-sufficient, then why do we have to add our two cents? Why can't we just pray and ask Him to save them? Listen, I would love to live in a world of perfect peace. That will never come until the hearts of the people have changed. The only way the hearts of people changed is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And here's the reality. Most of this world doesn't want anything to have, that has no desire to have a relationship with Christ. And yet still don't even know they can have a relationship with Jesus Christ because we haven't told them. Let's just be honest. The reason all those men acted badly was because they didn't know Jesus. If Adolf Hitler would have become a Christian halfway through his reign, would things have changed? Oh yeah. So the answer isn't a bigger gun. The answer isn't, I can give a word that's worse than he did. The answer is, they're souls. They need to be saved. What does it mean that in Christ we are all sufficient? 
How does that happen? How does that happen? It comes from not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but thinking with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith. Verse 3, I will tell you this, we must, we must replace self-preoccupation with Christ-preoccupation, just like Stephen and Paul did. We need to change our self-infatuation and replace it with Christ-infatuation. Self-exaltation with Christ-exaltation. That's how faith is, beholding and embracing the all-satisfying treasure of Jesus Christ. How? How do we do that? If Christ is the root of radical behavior, then we need to be more like Christ. Amen? It's, I mean, that's just that simple. If Christ can change our hearts, and He did, did He just quit after your salvation? Or have we lost focus of Him? <laughs> Faith in Christ involves turning from our natural self as the source of our main contentment and security. In other words, we must die to ourselves. Daily sacrifice. Romans 12, 1. Threatening this self with belittling speech or with pain or with death is no longer the ultimate threat. Really? I can say bigger words than you can. Really? Isn't that so juvenile? Let's just be honest. Do you remember the yard of the schoolroom or school playground? Saying things back and forth because you can say things worse. What did that do? Do you realize that you're a son of the sovereign God? Whatever you think we think we can do against somebody, God knows what He's going to do. That's His deal, not ours. That's absolutely His. <clears throat> so, what does that look like? And I'm not. I'm. I'm going to go through this right now. What did Christ do? I think that's the best way to deal with all of these. Christ also blessed those who cursed him. We found that in Luke six, Matthew four, or. Uh, I don't remember now. Matthew, anyways. It's also found in Luke 23. He's on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now let me ask you, you say, well, see, he just wanted their forgiveness. Okay, if God is going to forgive somebody, what does that mean? Are they not saved then? <laughs> it's talking about salvation. He is praying to God the Father for the salvation of those that are murdering Him. Unbelievable. Since faith savors everything it sees about Christ, it savors this. If you see and savor mercy in Christ, you will love being merciful. If Christ blessed those who cursed Him, we must bless those that curse us. It demands greater faith in Christ. The reality is, our faith is weak. Secondly, Christ did not just bless His enemies in the abstract. He actually blessed by dying for them. Did He not? When he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what to do, here's what he's saying. He said, I will die for them. 
that they might have a relationship with the Father. So it's not just this, well, he says that. No, he did that. By the way, how in the world can you rejoice in the downfall or the negative things of somebody? And how dare we curse somebody that persecutes us, yet we turn around and we did the same thing to Jesus. We're hypocrites. Because here's Jesus. Let me ask you, were we ever perfect? We were them. Despite that, God saved us, the enemy of Him. How hypocritical for us to ask for $20 when we owed somebody else $100,000. Ooh. New Testament parable. Jesus. Third, lastly, Christ has made our future absolutely secure forever. What does it matter? In the big scheme of things, what does it matter that people do bad things against us? We have a home in heaven, eternal home in heaven. Isn't that exactly what Stephen was saying? I, I want to live longer. Don't! No. I pray that the Lord will save each and every one of you. Why? Because my home is already prepared. And I will forever eternally be with Him. Do we live like that? By dying for us and rising again, our future is absolutely secured. Matthew chapter 10 brings all this out. It says, do not fear for those who kill the body. Stephen did that. Because they cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground except the Father will know it. Even so, the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not! God's got your back! Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. John Piper says it concludingly very, very well. If you struggle with feelings of bitterness and revenge, go deeper with Christ until you know Him and love Him the way He really is. In essence, it goes right back to verse 1. It goes right back to verse 1. If you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind because of who He is and what He has done and what is continued to do, then and only then can you bless those who persecute you because He is your everything. I will leave it with a little illustration. How many know what a fan is? What is a fan? Mr. Gaiman's so into that. <laughs> Especially a sports fan. What is a sports fan? I'm saying that facetiously because he's absolutely not. All for the team. So a Minnesota Viking fan probably has purple on his car somewhere. He probably has his, his, his get, in, get into the place card in his wallet how many understand this he's got all of that stuff he goes to every game his he looks at all the blogs he reads he knows every one of their all the players birthdays he knows all about he knows everything about them is that true i mean you can't talk to him 
without hearing about the Vikings. Do you get it? Except we're not just this fan. We are literally descendants. Children of the King. Does everything that is in your life saturated with Christ? And when someone talks to you, you know where they sit, where you stand. That is where we need to be if we are going to bless those that curse us. And to be honest, all of us have work to do. We do. We're not there. And it isn't because of America. It isn't because of people and all that. It's because our heart is not saturated as it should be. Bless those that persecute. I told you this is a powerful text. This is a radical text. Let me ask you. How does this text apply to us? Where in the world do we go from here? You need to know Him more. We need to love Him more. That is the beginning. Now, I am not telling you go get a bumper of Jesus and stick it on your car. That's ridiculous. I think they're a bad idea. I don't... That is an opinion. God's... I need to respect Him more than that. What I am saying is, whether you eat or drink or whatever mundane thing even in your life you do, it's all for God. Is it? I pray so. Mr. Gaiman, would you close in a word of prayer, please?